Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Would you mind identifying what you are? Bites. I'm Lily Ryan. Behind the panel this evening, we have the fantastic Dan Salmon. Hello, Dan. How are you going? I'm very well, Lily. How are you? I'm all right. And um, what what piece of tech has caused you either great despair or great delight this week? It has been a week of despair. Um, So... uh, my workplace uh, decided that in, after months of planning um, to move to a new instance of uh, Office 365 because we've we've shifted our location in the in the broader organisation, right. and it has gone. Actually, actually, you know what? For me and for the vast majority of people, I think it has gone reasonably smoothly, which is great. But there are people who for whom. They're not able to help themselves, I think, is probably the um, the best way to describe it and who have been jumping up and down with sky is falling, this isn't working, this isn't working and the world's trying to screw me over. And it's just it's just like, you know what, the world's not trying to screw you over. A, a, a stretched team of very hardworking people have been doing their absolute best to get do the right thing and make sure it's working and they have by and large, done a great job and you shouldn't be wailing on them. And it's really been disappointing to see people say that um, their own short, their own failures to deal with the tech are someone else's fault. Oh, boy, that's a – look, it's a tale as old as time, really. It really is. It really is. And I could I've, – I've had plenty of rants this week and it's nice that you've asked me that question because I've been able to rant to all of our listeners about the problem. I'm not going to go into specifics or name names, but they know who they are and they need to stop. But <laughs> – does ranting on air make it um, – does it get it out of your system faster? Like if you realise that we have a lot of listeners, does that mean that – does it count as like several hundred rants? Yeah, or? sure. Why not? I think that's – you know, I'm, I'm definitely feeling a lot more at peace now, which is, you know – Okay. Uh, there's, some, there's some empirical evidence for you. Yeah, all right. Yeah. I'm, I like that. How about, how about you? Joy or despair in tech this week? Honestly, I think a bit of joy in tech for the very first time, and I've wanted this for years, I got myself a projector, like a home projector to watch movies. Lovely. Yeah. Um, One of my neighbors has one. I don't know this neighbor, but they do project things onto the wall that sort of lead straight down to their front door and they leave the door open on warm days. And you can just see like at an angle the movies that they're watching and it's just I've been walking past there like every night for weeks and it's made (laughs) me so jealous so I got a projector lovely that's that's I I love how like a a moment in the urban fabric has inspired you to to do something like this I might in my last share house we had in the backyard a gigantic white wall it was a big lawn and the neighbor's house butted up right against the lawn and it was just a big white wall and we thought perfect opportunity we used to have backyard movie nights and Sadly, a little bit nerdily, we used to watch election night on the <laughs> on the big projector and have a party in the backyard. It was actually a really great feature of the share house. Whomst among us has not had an election night party? I mean, I'm also outing myself as a massive nerd, but you are listening to a tech show, so hopefully you too harbour some nerdy tendencies. Indeed, indeed. Speaking of nerdy uh, topics and tech, what's what's in store for us tonight? Oh, tonight, I'm very much looking forward to our conversations tonight. First up, we are going to have Professor Sally Grass from the University of Melbourne, who's going to talk to us about the Digital Bioprocess Development Hub, which is very cool, and we'll Mm -hmm. learn all about that. 
After that, we're going to talk to John Payne from Electronic Frontiers Australia about the Commonwealth Government's new cybersecurity strategy, which came out recently, and there's quite a lot to unpack in that. So I think we'll have a really interesting time digging into it. It's going to be great fun. Very much looking forward to it. Yes. But, but firstly, we've got we've got some things we want to chat about, don't we? Oh, there's always news. There's always news. Yes, there is always news. Hit us with the news, Lily. <laughs> a couple of different pieces of news. Some of these, um, you know, there's news, there's olds, there's kind of mediums, <laughs> I guess. You, you know, when I, when I discovered that news is in fact the plural of new, that kind of blew my mind a little bit because, of course, it is. New things. News is... Yeah. Is, yeah. You're the, the news. But it's actually kind of... This one is... It is news, but it is old as well. Mm. Um we haven't, I haven't heard it covered anywhere, though, um, and I think it's worth talking about because it is pretty interesting and important, which is that Google Chrome, the browser, they have just started to roll out the manifest version 3, um, which, you know, I'm sure everybody has heard all of <laughs> no. Okay, so manifest v3, um, which is a version of the kinds of things about the browser that... Um, they allow extension developers to access. So if you've got your plugins or extensions for a browser, um, they can usually access bits and pieces about your browser Mm -hmm. in order to work. Um, So it's like API kind of stuff? Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, And so there are standards for this so that you can develop to those standards. And one of them has to do with the way that you can access... um, the network traffic and the other things that are going on inside the browser as you you know go from website to website and a lot of other things. Um, and like a lot of standards changing with the web, this is something that needed to be coordinated with you know the wider web development industry and things like that. So this version three has been in the works for a long time, several years, but they've started to roll it out after having paused it previously. And um, it's been pretty controversial and there's been a lot of discussion around it because one of the things that it does is that it restricts the ability for ad blocking extensions to operate inside of Chrome. Right. Yeah. Now, for, the, for those of us who do have ad blocking extensions, they're, they're, I suppose, a bit of a godsend in that you're not going to get forced with ads essentially when you browse through the various websites that you go to. Is that, is yeah. that kind of in summary, that would be yeah. what an ad blocking extension That's is? That's right, yes. And in order, so so what we're talking about is that ability is going to be unavailable for Chrome users from the future? Is, is this where we're going for? Restricted. How so? Um, they've they've changed it so that for people who are building those, those add-ons or extensions, um, they're only able to do a certain amount of what they used to do before in order to stop this. So they used to be able to, you know, you'd have a long list of sites that are typically sites that host ads. And mm. every time that a request would go off to one of those sites, when you loaded a page, the extension would like grab it and sort of put it in a bin mm. and then the ad wouldn't turn up. Um, but because um, Chrome is owned by Google, who are also coincidentally the owners of one of the largest advertising networks on the internet Mm. um this is now something that they well this is something they have had the power to do for quite some time but also goes to show quite a lot about the power that they have um over the internet as a whole in the way that it works by um operating basically the most popular browser Mm. and a lot of the tech that those browsers are also built like alternative browsers are built on top of chrome as well Mm -hmm. things like brave also based on chromium which is you know, what powers Chrome and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, Firefox isn't. It's one of very few that isn't. But more or less, this means that because Google controls all, most browsers and also this ad network, um, they can just do this. And and it, 
seeing as you know Google is the delivery module for so many of the ads that we see online is this this is blatant self-interest clearly it's 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 them feather betting themselves in order to uh, get around people who don't want to see the ads that they're serving up there's yeah that's that's sort of part of it I would say but mm. there's been as I said this is not something that has happened overnight this has been in the works for many years and there's been a lot of conversation about it because people have pointed out that it's probably not a good thing for the internet that these things coincide and are being used in this way. Mm. Um, but it is going ahead. It's starting to roll out pretty soon. And that means that ad blocker extensions are not going to work anymore. Mm. And so um, ad blockers like uBlock Origin, which has been, it's one of the more popular ones, and they've been very vocal in this whole discussion. Mm -hmm. um, they have been, you know, publishing a lot about this and just sort of saying, look, we're just not going to be able to do what we've been doing. And um, we're sorry, but this is how it's going to go. Is, 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 would we anticipate that this might end up being a bit of a sort of a whack-a-mole situation where, like, you know, ad blockers will find a way of getting around these restrictions and then Google will change their policy in another way in order to get through that? Is that, is that or are we, or are we, is it very much dead in the water, do you think? I'm, I'm not sure. I doubt that, you know, I doubt that anything's going to give up. We've had lots of different attempts. This, is, this has been a conversation that's as old as the web itself, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but if you want to talk about whack-a-mole in this circumstance, we also have um, the the way that uBlock Origin has been trying to work with blocking YouTube ads. That's been a very, very interesting game of cat and mouse, I would say, hmm. over the last couple of months because um, YouTube, also owned by Google, have been changing the things that they use to serve the ads inside of the browser um, like multiple times a day. And the uBlock Origin team, which is a very small <laughs> team compared to Google, has just been trying to catch up with them mm. over and over. And they've been publishing about this. So if you're interested in this whole thing, they, uBlock Origin has a pretty interesting perspective on it um, because it's a big change in the way that the web, in many senses, is going to work. You can find a lot about it published by by Google, by Firefox, you know, Mozilla, um, by lots of tech outlets as well. So it's definitely worth reading up on. Absolutely. So Something else that uh, we've been reading up on, uh, and Lily, I might ask you again to un unpack this a little bit more, but it seems like there's some stuff happening with Plex, the video sharing app. Yeah, have you used Plex? I've never used it. Did you want to give us a bit of an up, uh, sort of a, a quick, quick cliff's notes on what Plex might actually be? Yeah, um, it's, a, it's an app, and um, you can kind of use it as a one-stop shop for the content that you have access to so you could sign into netflix with it and disney plus with it and all mm. of that and you should have it in one place i have used plex many many years ago when it was when it was like you know browser based and like mm. long time ago now that would be sort of 15 years i would say yeah well i i started using it during some of the lockdowns because they have a watch together feature which means that you can watch something at the same time as another person and click start and stop at the same time and mm. you know that's pretty useful if you're all in lockdown yeah it's kind of um, cute. I like it. Yeah. And so they have been, you know, making a pretty good product for a long time. They got some funding pretty recently as well that has enabled them to expand the product. It, that has been a bit controversial in terms of what they've chosen to do there. So um, they've added in some features where you can now add friends on Plex. And previously, you know, you could you could connect to you could connect to different people's servers mm -hmm. and you had friends that you could connect with in order to use the watch together feature. Mm-hmm. Um, but now they, when you log in and if you've logged in recently, you will have been asked to set a profile up and it will share viewing stats and things with your, your friends mm. and to, it will encourage you to find your friends in other kind of ways, which I find personally to be pretty annoying because yeah. I don't want everything to be a socially networked thing. It's just like, can't you just build an app? Please? Yeah. 
but something that what well, is there nothing left that's just for me right yeah just and, please well and, and and this actually is something that has kind of been a bugbear of mine since spotify started doing this like mm. I, I i love you know i love listening to music obviously we're here on triple r music is something that we love but i don't need everyone to see what it is that i'm listening to at any given moment because sometimes i want to listen to the same song 17 times in a row and every time it's telling every, all of my network who bothered to look at you know spotify on a browser that um, you know, I'm listening to this particular song over yeah. and over again. Look, some days I'm just in a mood to listen to Aqua's greatest hits yeah. on a roll mm. and I don't need to be judged for that. Exactly. <laughs> and, and and the fact that you know you will be judged for it means you need to go into the private browsing whatever secret thing that they're calling it these days and switch it on. But, of course, it's only on for six hours because they want you to be sharing this information. Mm. You don't have an option to never share it, it, anyway, I'm going to well, stop ranting. It, it's all right. In, in the case of Plex, though, it has led to a bit of oversharing, mm. which is interesting because um, they have this week they released another feature which probably sounded really good to project managers and things internally, but um, that was a, a summary of like what's been going on in the week with you and your friends, what have you been watching? And so they started to send emails out to everybody who was a user and say, here's what you and your friends have been watching and doing and so on and so forth. Turns out also a lot of people use Plex to watch pornography. <laughs> who knew, right? To what, mm. the, so the Watch Together feature takes on an entirely different element in that it, sense. It can do, yes. Mm. And so um, this was not an... Uh, this was not a thing that many people wanted emailed to everybody that they had connected with, but no. also probably not a use case that um, the people who had decided this feature was a good idea had considered. How had they not considered that? Like the adult industry has driven into like technological advancement when it comes to the web since the web. That's true. Like That's very true. How, how is it that they have not... Like we wouldn't have video streaming if it wasn't for pornography. How do they not think that this was a thing that they would that people would harness? Like that it's is a wonderful question. Dan. It, it is. It is. I, I mean, it's almost like it's either willful ignorance or blatant stupidity, and both of them are like it's hilarious to think that they even would have considered. I'm not. Yeah. I'm, yeah anyway. Well, you know, quite apart from the sort of the lack of consideration that went into this feature, it's also got some pretty serious privacy implications and of things like that. Um, 404 Media has done some pretty interesting reporting on this one. So if you want to go and read more about what has happened with the Discover Together, we can review stuff with Plex. Um, you can head over there and have a read. Yeah, I've, I've, it's definitely definitely worth checking out. Triple R. Professor Sally Grass is from the Department of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering at the University of Melbourne, and she's also the director of the Digital bioprocess development hub which is very exciting news because she's also in the studio with us to talk all about it welcome to the show thanks for having me on so the the bioprocess development hub the digital bioprocess development hub there's you know there's a lot going on in there i think the the first question on my mind certainly was something um you know when hearing about this was what what does the bioprocess hub do and and we're talking about biopharmacology biopharm Biopharmaceutical manufacturing. Biopharmaceutical so manufacturing. Manufacturing medicines, essentially. I knew I was going to butcher a multisyllabic word, and I'm sorry that it was that one. Although you said multisyllabic very well, which is quite good. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yes. So, so yeah, Sally, do you want to give us a bit of a kind of a, a quick rundown on what it is that you do at the Hub? Sure. Well, we're a new research centre, and um, we launched just a couple of months ago now. And we're based at the University of Melbourne, as you said, but also have researchers at UTS in, in Sydney and at RMIT here in Melbourne as well. And we're all about um, stimulating innovation 
in um, in the sector, so in, in biopharmaceutical manufacture. Um, and what we're hoping to do is to really help the industry to adopt some of these AI and digital techniques. Interesting, because like in my head, when I hear pharma, pharma, pharmaceuticals and I hear AI, they're like the big boogeymen of the world. Like, you know, you hear big pharma and you big, hear big AI. And I'm sure it's not as scary as all that. No, no. <laughs> it's about making medicine uh, faster is one of our goals. So, And we all know from COVID that, you know, the ability to make medicines faster is really important. And it's not just about getting medicines there to the community quickly, but it's also about the volume. So, you know, how much can we make quickly as well? And that's where AI can really help us in terms of step change and innovation as well. Cool. So, like, I mean, it, it, obviously, AI has been around as a concept for a long time, but it's only really, I guess, been in the public consciousness for the last couple of years. You know, I, how far along are you guys in the, I suppose, the thinking when it comes to when it comes to applying AI to this kind of uh, uh, pharmaceutical technology? Well, it's a great question, and um, it's really exciting time in biopharmaceutical manufacturing, and and obviously AI is going very fast, of course. Um, but we're really on the, the cusp of a step change in the industry as well. So, um, and I guess compared to some other sectors, we're perhaps a little bit behind. And there's a great survey that McKinsey did back in 2019, looking just at how the sector, and this is globally as well, how it relates to, to other sectors. And, um, you know, it's behind things like hospitality and, and retail and banking and, and all of these other areas. Um, ahead of the public service is perhaps the only area. Um, <laughs> but there's some, some good reasons for that um, too. So if, if you look at this as an, as an industry, manufacturing medicines is quite complex. It's, it's not an easy thing when you look at all of the steps involved. So there's a lot of complexity. And so um, that's one reason why it's a little bit slower in, the, in this sector. Um, you know, and another is that it's a highly regulated environment too. So, you know, we expect our, our medicines to be produced in a controlled way with, you know, really good quality. And so here in Australia, that's the Therapeutic Goods Association that, that regulates that. In the US, it's the, the Food and Drugs Administration. And so it's a highly regulated environment too. But, you know, we can get a sense from other industries like chemical manufacturing and, and look at what techniques have been applied um, and that can then really help us think about the opportunities that are in, in biopharmaceutical manufacturing. And, you know, it, you know, when you delve into it as well, there's, there's lots of um, measures of maturity indices. And so, you know, we can go into that too around, you know, just how um, advanced um, the sector is. But on the whole, it's, you know, it's still spread in the early stages. Hmm. When, you, when you're talking about um, how you do medicinal manufacturing, medical manufacturing and all of those kinds of things. I think prior to the pandemic, I would have thought that's that's a solved thing, right? Like it's done and I'm completely outside this industry. So for me, I, I'd never really thought too deeply about it. And then watching things like the COVID vaccine become something that was developed and very rapidly as, you know, a thing we hadn't had before for a disease we hadn't had before and then manufactured en masse. You know, that, I guess, to me, really brought it home. It's like, oh, wow, you know, there's, there's a lot to be done there. And I realized that, you know, this is just my outsider's perspective, which is quite naive. But it sounds like um, with the development of this hub as well and putting this in place, there's, there's a lot more investment in that kind of new development as well as to how, how we can improve existing processes and how we might set up again for the future. What kinds of research opportunities are you exploring at the moment in this space? 
Well, yeah, you're right. I think there's a lot of opportunities in terms of speeding up process development, and that's around COVID vaccines, but more broadly across a whole range of different targets as well of different types of, of, of molecules. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a there's very broad potential. In terms of some of the, you know, the research that we're doing, if you want to get down into the details of that, um, we're really supporting the scientists and the engineers in terms of the manufacturing process and um, their decision-making around that. And so some of the examples there might be in, in trying to predict what happens in the manufacturing process, say, on the next day. Um, so it's kind of like a, a Goldilocks scenario. You want to have um, – and we're talking about um, drugs or, or medicines um, that are made by cells, essentially – and you want to give have a really happy environment for these cells. And so being able to predict what they need to feed them just the right amount, not too much, not too little, you know, that's, that's really important. And so AI can potentially help us to predict what's needed for the next day. And so we've got um, some of our staff and um, have been working on this problem um, to really um, predict what we've got to do um, in, in manufacturing processes. And another example is in scaling too. And you can imagine, again, going back to the pandemic, it's really important to be able to take something from a small scale, so something 250 mils you know, on the lab scale, and then expand it to, to 200,000 litres. And that's huge. And it's, it's quite difficult to do traditionally, using traditional techniques. And so being able to apply data-driven techniques... And the first example I was talking about was, was really a hybrid model, so where we bring together you know, machine learning and, and, and mechanistic equations. But in this um, scaling example, you know, we're just using data-driven techniques to try and predict again and to optimise those processes. When it comes to the way that we're doing this, and again, this was something that at least for me leapt out during the pandemic, um, we, you know, Australia is pretty geographically quite isolated. And so the ability for us to manufacture our own stuff here, especially where you've got medicine that is in some way time sensitive or dependent on certain conditions to remain viable, that becomes incredibly important from what I understand. And so what I, I guess, um, in terms of the hub itself, how, how much does that factor into the work that the hub is doing in terms of being an Australia-specific research facility versus something that, you know, we can feed back into the international discourse in the way that these things are developing? Well, it'll be both, actually. So, yeah, and it's about building what we'd call our sovereign capabilities. So, you know, our ability to understand um, our processes, to manufacture, as you said, to have um, to be able to do that here on our shores. And and it's something like um, 9 million Australians take a prescription medicine every day. So even taking it outside of the context of COVID, of COVID it's really important to be able to manufacture those medicines. And so it's important we can do that in a way that's, that's cost effective, but also competitive internationally. And so having these new AI skills to be able to help us understand the processes, predict them, optimise them, that's, that's essential. And so it's about um, developing skills in our researchers, um, but also in terms of workplace skills and, and more broadly training too. So, so if, we, if we're talking about, um, I guess, uh, the, the, the skills that, you are looking at uh, or that you're utilizing and building in in the hub are they are they are we looking at new or completely new skills or is it an adaptation of uh, existing skills or is it a kind of a combination of both 
A bit of both yeah. because there's the, the base skills that we have to be able to apply and then there's the new research that's driving all of these new developments and the application into pharmaceutical manufacturing. And, you know, we're, we're looking really for skills in, in, in or two types of skills. It's computer scientists who can apply themselves into a particular area, but then it's also other technical specialists who can then pick up computer science skills. And in, in fact, in our area, we're, we're really wanting three skills. We, we want, we're a bit greedy, we want um, chemical engineers and we want computer scientists and what we call subject matter experts, so people who understand the process of manufacturing and the context of how we do that. And those people are, are you know, there's not many of them worldwide that have all three of those skill sets, you know, kind of like a, a unicorn, if you like. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, we have to, to train people. And so we're training um, PhD students, researchers, the workplace, uh, or, you know, doing workplace skills as well. We're putting master's students out into companies too. And that gives opportunities for us to work with a broader range of companies as well. So it's, yeah, across the board. Mm. And, and, and thinking about, and I, I don't want to dwell too much, I suppose the the topic we're talking about is inherent to the pandemic that we've just been through, but it is it's one of these things where it feels like the the, the worry has gone away, and that you know it's great societally, um, but I, I wonder are you are you are you concerned that perhaps the impetus to be ready for the next thing that comes along is 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 that is that a risk that we need to worry about, or is it or do you think that it's going to be fresh enough in everyone's memories that we're going to be supporting this kind of new research and development a lot more than we would have if we hadn't just gone through a massive pandemic? I think it's certainly still in our consciousness and I think it's, um, you know, recognised in a number of federal government initiatives, but it's certainly important too that we Mm. keep it front of mind. Um, But these types of skills are going to be more broadly applicable too. So if we think, you know, back to all of those different types of medicines and it could be, you know, an asthma treatment, it could be something for stroke, it could be an anti-cancer drug, you know, all of these types of manufacturing processes and and I'd actually extend it beyond um, biopharmaceuticals too. There's other high value adding manufacturing processes processes here in Australia. So if we think about food manufacturing too, there's much broader applicability for these types of techniques. And so I think we're going to see, you know, not just these sectors, we're going to see it rolling out across a a range of different sectors. When you, you've mentioned sort of AI and machine learning a little bit in this conversation, and I wondered if you could elaborate a little bit on what you mean when you say that in this context, because I know that there's certainly a lot of folks who would be listening thinking, How, where, where does ChatGPT come into this? <laughs> yeah, so ChatGPT is not one of our, um, I guess, core areas within our, within our hub. Um, but I guess there's such broad potential for AI across pharmaceutical manufacturing. And... Um, I guess it's one area if you look to say those regulators again and what they're seeing on the horizon, chat GDP and language models are part of you know what will be used in the industry. But we're looking um, more broadly, I guess, at, at um, machine learning models. We're looking for pattern prediction. Um, I mentioned hybrid models already. So bringing in some mechanistic, some knowledge-based equations that we can couple with these models to really help us um, understand them in the first place and then optimise them. But also, I mean, there's more broadly, you know, there's a whole set of skills that, that sit around that too. And, you know, it's it's starting, you know, thinking about um, the cloud and automation and Internet of Things. And, and this is all driven, of course, by sensors and getting data from the manufacturing process as well. And then it's the question of how we integrate all of that, you know, in terms of the different parts of the process and and the the IT support behind it. And that then generates, you know, the big data that we need and um, data analytics as well. And that all feeds into the AI that we do. 
it's I, I guess it's really wonderful to hear about how these things can be applied um, versus buzzwords, I suppose, and applied to really practical problems that, that impact all of us and certainly are going to intersect with our lives in one way or another, whether or not we know it. Is there anything else that you would direct people to to look up if they're interested in finding out more about the hub, in working with the hub, or you know, if they've listened to this and suddenly become inspired to take up a career? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of resources out there. So I guess you can take a look at our website if you just Google um, Digital Bioprocess Development Hub. But if you're interested in the topic more broadly, you know, there's a lot of resources out there, either through the regulatory agencies. You could look at Moderna. You know, they make the mRNA vaccine. So they've done quite a bit. They've got a good white paper on digital bioprocessing. Um, so there, there, there's a couple of places to start. Brilliant. Well, we've been speaking with Professor Sally Grass, and we are thrilled that you have come here to talk to us about the Digital Bioprocessing Hub. Thank you so much for your time. A pleasure. Thank you. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. The Australian government, the federal government, released the 2023 to 2030 cybersecurity strategy. And um, under the auspices of the Department of Home Affairs, that's given us six cyber shields, uh, which is a really fun phrase to say quickly, um, and three sort of cyber horizons, which is interesting. I also did a bit of a count. The strategy contains the word cyber 598 times in 64 pages, which is about just over nine times a page. Um, There's a lot going on in here. Um, not just the use of the word cyber, but also some really interesting stuff to dig into in, in terms of um, the way that we are now thinking about our information security as part of our national strategy, both in terms of defense, in terms of our economic development and plenty of other things. And here to talk about it with us tonight is John Payne of Electronic Frontiers Australia. Welcome to the studio, John. Uh, thank you. Great to be here again. Yeah, so it's wonderful to have you here to talk about this because there's there's a lot in this document. As I said, it's 64 pages long um, and there are quite a lot of terms being thrown around that I think can kind of make your eyes glaze over if you're just sort of reading it at a surface level. Could you help break down what's in the strategy, what it's trying to do over the next, you know, nearly decade? Sure. Um, at its heart, it's trying to um, lift the standards for cybersecurity and, and managing cyber risk in Australia. Um, the overall strategy in itself, uh, I would probably give it a B. Uh-huh. Um, that's that's it, a reasonably it, high score, I would have thought. Uh, well, being a generous marker here, mm. um, because a lot, of, a lot of thought did go into it, and it, it does seek to remedy some uh, uh, earlier mistakes of past governments, particularly in, in relation to, for example, uh, repealing... Um, the uh, metadata restriction uh, retention laws that passed about 10 years ago. Oh, yeah. Um, of themselves, they mm. create a, a honeypot and a target uh, for bad actors to try and exfiltrate. So to turn that around and flip it, um, I think that's a, you know, a good thing. Well, yeah, that's um, – I, I mean, I remember being – pretty up in arms when that came in about 10 years ago. And um, people pointed out at the time that this was going to be something that caused businesses to hang on to a large amount of information, which could then end up being breached. And then last year, that happened multiple times. So it's really great to see that this kind of thing is now coming into that conversation, because it means, I mean, from what I'm seeing about the strategy, there's a lot in here about making sure that businesses across the country are able to do something meaningful when it comes to keeping ourselves safe. And that really does start with, if you don't need to keep the information, don't hold on to it. 
yeah. it's not that of steel. It, it's a, probably a broader conversation than this. It's it's finally a realization from the government when considering the digital economy as being a party in that everyone wants to come to the party but no one wants to clean up. And this is the role of often the cyber and security practitioners that work in our organisations and our government agencies. Typically, most organisations, especially private sector, invest so much money in customer acquisition, uh, customer retention and customer analysis that the poor old security department doesn't receive its just deserves in terms of a comparative percentage of revenue spent on security compared to your CRM system or compared to your sexy website. So this is a good thing in the sense that we're seeing the government uh, make some positive changes through legislation to mandate particular requirements to toughen measures for cybersecurity. We're seeing changes to the uh, security of Critical Infrastructure Act, the Sochi Act, um, and the inclusion of the telecommunication companies finally in in that act is um good common sense and it should have been the position in the first instance so that's pleasing to see um what is not pleasing to see is um uh, a lack of harmonization and a lack of opportunity in particular in relation to other regulatory frameworks such as the privacy act which is the final report was just issued a, a month or so ago from uh the attorney general's office um and in in that act um, or in that report, I'd probably give that you know a C minus because there are still um, problematic areas that relate to cyber and data risk um, that do not um, diminish um, the collection of, of personal data, um, do not restrict the practices of uh, you know those invisible data brokers and data uh, purveyors that that exists on the web. Um, and don't, doesn't satisfactorily deal um, with data retention. Um, and we still have problems where some particular laws under which organisations must comply, for example, telecommunications laws require uh, telcos and, and phone sellers to keep know-your-customer documents, your identity documents, etc., for two years. Now, why can't that be changed? Why can't it be the process be subject to... Uh, Complete the form, follow the process, destroy the data once you've met your obligation. It's been interesting to watch the way that this legislation has progressed and I think the use of the word harmonisation is especially apt in this context when it comes to the digital ID legislation as well that's been, you know, trying to get up off the ground for 30 years and, you know, in various forms over time. Um, one of the things that it's it's definitely being put forward as um, you know, as a good thing in this instance is, well, if, if the government holds the ID, that means that they can always just give you a Boolean yes or no when it comes to checking certain things about the know your customer information. So, you know, something, a company like Optus or Telstra could just request the government's thing and say, you know, okay, does person X have attribute Y? Yes or no? Great. Give them a tick rather than holding the entire passport picture or whatever that they're currently doing. Um, and it's it's been, I think, Kind of, uh, not kind of, it has been frustrating to see the way that a lot of these things have kind of emerged at the same time without without being in dialogue with each other directly, I think, and particularly also without being in dialogue with the upcoming changes to the Privacy Act as well, because that is going to govern how any of this manages to function. I wonder, um, 
from the point of view of businesses, though, and particularly from the point of view of privacy and in relation to businesses and this strategy, um, what your thoughts are on the way that this will impact small and medium businesses in particular? Because I do note that one of the cyber shields, I think it's the first one, is strong businesses and citizens. And there's an element as part of that, um, I can't remember whether they call it a shield, a strategy or something else, as part of that facet of the program. That is uh, to give sort of three free threat assessments to small and medium-sized businesses. In addition to that, there's been a lot of noise about how we need to change the Privacy Act because currently businesses under a certain amount are exempt from needing to comply with it, which means that they also don't have great data handling practices in a lot of cases. But this comes into play with some issues around, you know, whether or not we actually have the people to help people implement better changes to their systems, as in the skilled professionals to do so in the country. What do you think about this kind of accumulation of situations together and how do you see it resolving itself and what do you think would be the best outcome in this case? There certainly is an interrelation between the proposed changes in the cyber strategy with regards to small business. Um, and having an expectation that they will develop both a, a capability and further to that a competency in, in being cyber smart. Um, this marries into the review of the Privacy Act where the small business exemption is being considered to be repealed and having small businesses regulated by the Privacy Act subject to um, the Office of the Information Commissioner preparing um, tools, resources and trainings to enable um, that skill to be developed. And the question is, um, on the current resourcing, um, they they probably don't have that. They need to budget for more resourcing to deliver those tools in a timely fashion. Um, And um, to get participation from business is also um, another tough question. So it's going to require more than having this sort of field of dream strategy, of building it, and they will come. Um, You really need to partner... Uh, with the regulatory organisations um, and also small business and small business representative organisations to help this through with some degree of success. All in all, it's a positive step. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that there will be something to come out of this that will enable us to move towards something better by 2030. And I know you can always choose an arbitrary year to make it sound futury, and that's, you know, that's great. Um, but it does also... I can't remember the phrase you just used, but there is quite a lot in here that does seem like, well, it'd be quite nice if you managed to do this, but you know, is this actually going to get us to that point? How do we measure the, the success of some of these outcomes and what assumptions are they built on top of? And I wondered, um, in your point of view, where the the least effective parts of this are um, in, this, in this strategy itself, not just in terms of the way that it's talking to the privacy legislation, but whether some of these things, you know, we're still talking about it in terms of defence, for example. It's still under the auspices of Home Affairs. This has all been published as a very sort of militarised exercise rather than something that is, I I suppose, more approachable or mundane, which is quite often what a lot of this ends up being. It's just the really boring everyday stuff. It's not, um, you know, pupia maps and hoodies. I think there's a recognition there that with the Department of Defence and the Australian Signals Directorate setting out a range of standards for the protection of government data. Um, it's, a, it's a good standard, good process, but they won't be, um, if you like, the uh, SAR having oversight uh, of 
strategy. It'll be a separate entity. Um, it's the National Office for the Cybersecurity. So, again, uh, home affairs. Mm. Um, it won't be an overnight fix. Clearly, what we're talking about is building a significant capability for business and it's a significant cultural change. What worries me a bit is this sort of fixation we have with the Minister uh, in relation to being a world leading in cyber security. I think it's great to have an aspiration. Uh, it's great to set goals. Um, but before you can be great, um, you've got to be good. So it needs to be um, an achievable strategy. Um, we won't go from being uh, an adequate uh, player in, in terms of managing cyber risk to someone that's world leading um, without a lot of work and a good strategy underpinning that and an excellent execution of the strategy. And hopefully that we can, we can get there. Um, there have been a lot of conversations about it over the last couple of years as it's entered the public consciousness kind of fairly rudely for most people with the breaches, which despite the fact that they've been pretty devastating, I think, have have actually helped this conversation to progress beyond, well, why would anyone care? Um, I am also interested in one aspect of the of this strategy, which is the... Uh, the way that they're now not recommending necessarily that it is prohibited to pay ransoms because ransomware is also a pretty big problem. We've seen it shut down mm. a variety of different industries, most regular, uh, most recently, you know, with ports and stuff. Um, but one aspect that came out in this document was we are not going to prohibit people from paying ransoms necessarily. We recommend you don't pay them, um, but it's not actually prohibited. It seems like a bit of a change from the advice that was being given before. What's your take on that particular element? Uh, it, it seems that someone has had some philosophical musings uh, uh, in relation to um, the payment of, of, of ransom. Um, clearly, historically, the common advice is you never pay a ransom to anyone. Um, but there are models out there with the bad actors that show and prove that... Um, uh, if you ask for an amount of money that's not being too greedy, there's a high propensity for the victim to pay, particularly with individuals mm -hmm. whose you know laptop or their home device has been you know, locked up by you know, someone in Belarus or Kazakhstan. Yeah, it's it's definitely going to I think require pretty consolidated and considered strategy. Hopefully, this gives us the basis to go on from there. But it's definitely a lot to dig into. John, thank you so much for coming in and talking us through this, this strategy and uh, hopefully we'll speak to you again really soon. Okay. Thanks very much. Great to be here. For those who want to find out more um, uh, about Electronic Frontiers Australia, you can head to efa.org.au and uh, there will be a, you'll be able to find out everything that EFA is doing to, su to uh, support our digital rights in an increasingly digitally uh, scary world. Triple R. Before we go scary, I just, and I know that we hate Lily talking about Elon. But <laughs> I, I was trying really hard to avoid I know, that. but then I just saw something that I really I, I enjoyed. Tesla is suing Sweden. Like the, the country. <laughs> the country. The so, whole country. Okay. Yeah. So I, 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 just, I saw that as the headline. I, was like, I, I must discuss this. And I d dug into it a little bit more. It's actually it is a 
union story, which we love. We love solidarity. We love we love collective bargaining. Essentially, uh, Tesla workers in uh, Sweden are on strike, and for you know various reasons, I can't imagine that working for Tesla would be fantastic. So the, the Swedish members of the car they don't manufacture uh, Teslas in Sweden, but they do a lot of servicing and gotcha. you know sales that kind of stuff. So workers for Tesla in Sweden have gone on strike, and um, Tesla, in true Tesla fashion, are fighting against it. You know legal and morally and uh, in re- in response uh, there's a lot of uh, I suppose support blockadey kind of you know sympathy strikes that are happening um, one one of which being the um, motor uh, was it the Swedish transport agency who have basically um, decided that they are not going to be providing Tesla with any number plates for Sweden um, and as a result of that, uh, Tesla is suing the Swedish state through the Swedish Transport Agency, saying that local union members are, are, are blocking Tesla from selling new cars in the country. Um, then, uh, the, almost immediately, the Nörköping, and I didn't—I'm pretty sure I pronounced that correctly—the Nörköping District Court said that the company should be allowed to circumvent existing rules and collect the damn license plates itself. Wow. <laughs> I love I love this story. There's there's if you just Google Sweden sue or Telstra uh, Tesla suing Sweden and uh, you'll find out all you need to know about that. Thank you so much for being with us. We have had a blast and we hope you have too. Thank you so much to our guests this evening, Professor Sally Grass and John Payne, and thank you very much to my co-host Dan. And thank you to my co-host Lily. And thank you very much also to our talks producer Lou Lin, who is a wonderful human. We without Lou we would not be able to do this. Show. Thank you so much, Lou. Yeah, thank you, Lou. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts. 